The Homosexual Saint and Christian Morality Preface If you're a straight Christian who has never had to deal with homosexuality before, there's a good chance you've read the Bible say homosexuality is an abomination and thought the case was closed. I thought the same thing until I hit puberty and was forced to try to reconcile the desire for companionship that God had given me with what he also appeared to forbid. Now, two decades later, I believe the morality of homosexuality to be a more complex issue and would like to share that with you. Please try to read this with an open mind and understand that it's not coming from a spirit antagonistic to the church. It's coming from a brother who cares about the fellowship of believers and wants to do his best to serve God. In this paper, unless otherwise stated, when I say gay or homosexual, I'm referring to homosexual attractions, not to a specific action or lifestyle that may result from the attractions. For context, I'd like to make a couple things clear. First, I believe scripture is an inerrant word of God. Second, I am a gay Christian. I do not have, nor have ever had, any sexual desires for any woman in any way, ever. Third, I never chose to be this way. Prior to puberty, I have memories of homosexual tendencies, but it wasn't until I hit puberty that I actually developed a sex drive. Never during my development did I desire, or get the opportunity to choose to desire women over men. Lastly, there is no smoking gun for me. I was never sexually abused or otherwise abused, and had about the same relationship with my parents as any normal kid. I have no reason to think that anything in my childhood had anything to do with how my sexuality turned out. This paper is written by a Christian for Christians to consider the question, is homosexuality immoral? Section 1. The Bible. Section 1.1. Old Testament. The Bible talks about homosexuality directly in three main places. The first is the Old Testament law, as shown in Leviticus 20.13 and 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. The Old Testament law are categorized into three types of law. Civil laws governed Israel as a nation. Ceremonial laws governed clean and unclean things and sacrifices. And then moral laws, like the Ten Commandments, apply to all humans for all time. So the question is, is the prohibition of homosexual acts a civil or ceremonial law, or is it a moral commandment? It's not clear. As far as the Old Testament sexual laws are concerned, we do believe it is immoral and one is in sin if they have sex with an animal, Leviticus 18.23, but we do not believe it is immoral or a husband is in sin to have sex with his wife during her period, Leviticus 18.19. Given that all three have the same context, it's not possible from this context alone to decide if homosexuality is a civil or a moral law. But the word choice does provide some clue into context, specifically the use of the Hebrew word for abomination. Strong's Concordance and the Jesneus Hebrew Chaldea Lexicon both connect the use of this word in the Old Testament with idol worship, specifically used of things belonging to worship of idols and of idols themselves. So the word choice seems to imply that this practice of homosexuality was forbidden based on its connection with idol worship. Further driving home the connection of homosexuality with idol worship in the Old Testament, the only homosexual sex referenced in the Old Testament is in the context of cults, Deuteronomy 23.17, 1 Kings 14.24, 1 Kings 15.12, and 2 Kings 23.7. Therefore, given the word choice, abomination, and the context we see of homosexuality and shrine prostitution, there is strong evidence that this prohibition was based on keeping Israel as a nation pure from other nations and from idolatry, not a prohibition of homosexuality being inherently immoral like adultery or murder. Section 1.2 List of Sins 
The next passages are when the Bible lists homosexuality in a list of sins, as in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 and 1 Timothy 1, 9-10. The word used for homosexual in the Greek is arsenikoitai, which literally translates to man-beds. This word hasn't been used since Paul used it in 1 Corinthians, so it's hard to define. The best explanation came from Robin Scroggs about 30 years ago, who explained that it references the Greek words used in Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13 in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That is to say, arsenikoitai is a direct reference to the verses Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That being the case, we're right back where we were looking at the Old Testament verses that Paul is referencing. Given that the verses in Leviticus appear to be saying homosexuality used in idol worship is immoral, by referencing those verses, it appears that Paul is reiterating that homosexuality used in idol worship is still immoral. Section 1.3. Romans. The third passage is Romans 1. This is the clearest passage about homosexuality in the Bible. Romans 1, 23-32 says, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which, is, which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, envy, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Here, Paul clearly says that sinners choose to exchange the truth of God for a lie, and therefore, as a result of this decision, degraded into homosexual desires. These people's homosexuality is a direct result of their lack of acknowledgement of God as God. The proof of their sinfulness and morality is evident in the list of sins that Paul lists off. Not only do they do these sins, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. One could say, you know the tree by its fruit. Matthew 12.33. So here we are left with a conundrum. This homosexuality is clearly the result of willful idolatry and ignorance of God. I am a homosexual, but I have never willfully chosen to worship the created rather than the creator. Thus, my homosexuality cannot be the result of doing so. Not only can I confidently say that I serve God, but those perversions do not represent my life. Righteousness, wickedness, greed, envy, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, and burners of evil. Not only do they not characterize my life, but I certainly do not encourage others to partake in them, or approve of those who do. I sin, just like everyone, 1 John 1, 8 and 9, but the important difference is that A, I have not dethroned God in my life, and B, 
the list of sins doesn't describe me any more than any straight Christian. Thus, I would argue that the homosexuality described in this passage is not talking about the homosexuality that I have, but rather a homosexuality that comes from a degradation as a result of a person choosing to serve the pot rather than the potter. Furthermore, this passage is very clear. All homosexuals described here, those who fell into homosexuality as a result of exchanging the truth of God for a lie, are damned to hell for what they have chosen. If this passage were to describe me, that means, A, I am in idolatry and I have chosen to worship the created rather than the creator, B, I have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, C, the list of sins describes me, D, I encourage other people to sin, and E, I am damned to hell. Thus, since A is definitely wrong, as is B, C, D, and E, this passage does not address me. Just because Paul talks about homosexuals who are damned to hell doesn't necessarily mean that all homosexuality is immoral. Just like there are straight men who are having straight sex immorally, but not all straight sex is immoral. What I believe Paul is describing here are heterosexual men who like sex so much that they descend into homosexuality. They like getting off so much, they don't care who it is that is getting them off. They have made sex their god, and homosexuality resulted. Very different than the situation I find myself. Section 1.4. Romans and Bad Logic One contrary view of the Romans passage is worth mentioning. That, for this reason, isn't saying that the individual did anything wrong. Instead, the argument is a general homosexuality that occurs in the individual is because society as a whole has exchanged truth of God for a lie. But this doesn't make logical sense. Christians understand that sin is a progression. The book of James explains this in 1, 14-15. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Sin in the individual is a progression that gets worse without God. For example, someone who fans the flames of sinful lust with porn or fornication could find themselves eventually going down a road where they would consider rape. Or someone who broods and fans the flames of sinful hatred could eventually find themselves considering murder. But what you don't see is someone who doesn't have a problem with lust or hatred considering rape or murder. Effectively, this illogical argument says that because there are people in society who have abandoned God and worship lust, someone else in society who has not abandoned God nor been cultivating the sin of lust in their life is suddenly now experiencing the fruit that sin of lust has produced. That's nonsensical. This isn't to say that people's sin doesn't affect other people. Clearly both rape and murder have victims. The point is the aggressor of both these terrible acts have gotten to the depravity of mind that would allow them to consider such a heinous act by starting with sins of lesser consequence and allowing their sin to fester and grow into greater depravity. Section 1.5 Naturally Moral Hair Paul makes the argument in Romans 1 that idol worshippers degraded into unnatural sexuality as a result of their idolatry. But this is not the only place he talks about what is unnatural. Paul uses the same Greek for unnatural in 1 Corinthians 11:14-15. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? For her hair is given to her for a covering. He's making the point that men should not cover their heads when praying, but women should cover their head when they pray. 
because that is only natural. Because the modern church does not believe that women must cover their head when they pray, nor does the modern church agree with Paul that short hair on women is unnatural, this interesting word choice would certainly aid the argument that, that the passage about homosexuals in Romans might also be rooted in the culture of the day it was written. It's not important for the argument I'm making. I'm not making an argument that the morality of homosexuality has changed as a result of culture that has changed. I'm making an argument for the absolute morality of homosexuality apart from culture. I just think it's interesting because words matter. And although I wouldn't agree with Paul that long hair on guys is unnatural, I would agree it's unattractive, but that's probably not what he was getting at. Section 1.6, Sodom and Gomorrah. One last passage of note, Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19, and specifically verse 5, where the men of this city demand Lot give them the visiting men to have sex with them. I've heard it argued that this, and God's decision to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, are evidence that God detests homosexuality. It's the same immorality we see in the story of the traveler of the town of Gibeah in Judges 25-22. Bring out the men who came into your house that we may have relations with him. They wanted gang rape, which is wrong, regardless of the sexuality of the rape. The rape that followed of the man's virgin daughter and traveler's concubine was immoral, even though it was not homosexual. The desire of the crowd in both cases was immoral apart from the fact that the traveler was a male. But to further drive home the point that homosexuality wasn't the reason God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, God comes right out and says his reasons for the destruction of Sodom, and it's got nothing to do with homosexuality. When God explains why he destroyed them in Ezekiel 16.49, he says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had ignorance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. The sexual immorality described in the stories of Sodom and the town of Gibeah was rooted in gang rape, not homosexuality. Section 1.8 Intermediate Conclusion The Old Testament verses and the use of arson and koetai in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy show that homosexuality was forbidden because it was tied to idol worship. Romans 1 further condemns homosexuality that results from idolatry, saying, worshiping the created rather than creator. Section 2 Defining homosexuality. It's important at this point to make sure there's a common understanding about what is actually meant by homosexual. Because homosexuality in today's culture has become a complex issue with many implications and meanings, I would like to make it clear what the homosexuality described as paper is and what it is not. Section 2.1. More than just an orgasm. Not to be crude, but this is an important point to clarify. Many Christians lump pornography, sex with goats, and homosexual relations into the same category because they think they're all basically the same thing. They all revolve around an orgasm. But that's not the case. No one wants to marry the person they watched in a porno, or marry the goat. Both are just sinful means to fulfill a sexual desire. The thing is, homosexuality is not a sexual fetish, on the same level of a straight guy who likes fuzzy high heels. It's the desire for a romantic relationship. To think that homosexuality is just another means to an orgasm leads Christians to lump homosexuality in with all sexual perversions. Instead, Christians should be comparing homosexuality, man's desire for a man, to heterosexuality, man's desire for a woman. Section 2.2. A Man's Desire for a Man Homosexuality is the desire for homosexual romantic companionship and should be juxtaposed to the heterosexual desire for companionship not compared to heterosexual lust. That is to say, you don't desire a relationship with your porn, it's a means to an end. 
However, homosexuals do desire a romantic, meaningful relationship with another man. Why else would homosexuals want to get married? And that desire for homosexual romantic relationships also results in a number of subliminal psychological triggers that can be compared to the same in heterosexual men. One example of a subliminal psychological trigger is when you see someone attractive. That person is instantly more interesting, and it's actually quite bizarre. They can be the most boring person in the world, but you find yourself asking lots of questions to get to know them because, well, you just find them really interesting. Then you're also better at remembering what they say when you find them attractive. Not because the info was useful or important, but because they're attractive. Then there's also the memory of faces. I'll remember the face of an attractive guy I see one time in a crowd at a college football game, but I can't remember women's faces until I've gotten to know them well. I imagine this is the opposite for straight men. It's also super awkward when you recognize a handsome guy in the hall at school and make to say hi again, only to realize you've never actually met. Then there's the desire to impress attractive guys, the desires to invest time with men you find attractive, the desire to make memories together, the desire to su- for their support and desire to support them, the desire for non-sexual physical contact like brushing of hands, arms, feet, legs. We all desire to be wanted and to be important to someone special. The thing is, the homosexual man desires this from another man, where the heterosexual man desires this from a woman. It's a significant oversimplification to say that homosexuality is, the, is about an orgasm. And it's this oversimplification that causes many Christians to put homosexuality in the same category as porn, sex with goats, and sexual fetishes. Homosexual porn should be compared to heterosexual porn, whereas homosexuality should be compared to heterosexuality, the romantic desire for companionship. Section 2.3. Intermediate Conclusion. Homosexuality is not about an orgasm, and thus the morality of homosexuality does not lie in the act of an orgasm. The question revolves around the morality of a romantic, emotional, monogamous relationship between two guys, which would, after marriage, lead to homosexual sex. Homosexual sex itself is not important. The crux of the question is about homosexual romance. Section 3. Marriage. The Christian Purpose of Marriage. Section 3.1. A Helpmate. Why did God make Eve? Because, as God explained, it is not good for the man to be alone. Genesis 2, 18-24. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, and to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked, and they were not ashamed. After creating Adam and Eve, God gives them the command to be fruitful and multiply. However, God did not make Eve to enable procreation, but rather because it is not good for man to be alone. God first tried to satisfy this need with an animal, but he could not. 
only another human could satisfy the loneliness of man. If God thought this helper was for making babies, why would God seek to find a companion for man amongst the animals? And here we see marriage as part of God's design. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Furthermore, when God gives the woman to satisfy man's loneliness, he is not speaking of friendship. If he was, then marriage wouldn't be needed for its satiation. But as any married man can attest, there is a level of companionship achieved with marriage that one cannot achieve in friendship. This passage in Genesis is also the scripture referenced by Jesus in Matthew 19, 3-5. Some Pharisees approached him and tested him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause whatever? He said in reply, Have you not read that from the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. Here, Jesus literally says that God made two genders, therefore marriage exists. The most common implication the church draws from this passage is that marriage can only work if the physical bodies of the two parties are different, male and female. Although that is not antithetical to this passage, this is also not said by this passage. What Jesus literally says is that marriage exists because God made male Adam and Eve a female, and marriage would not exist if God had not made them. Looking at the original passage, it is more likely he is saying that if a suitable helper for Adam had been found among the animals, marriage would never have existed. But no suitable helper for Adam was found, therefore God made both Adam and Eve and the covenant of marriage so that man would not be alone. Section 3.2 Marriage, Not About Procreation As we see, the purpose of marriage is not procreation. Although sex and procreation can only exist within the confines of marriage, procreation is not marriage's purpose. If procreation was a requirement of marriage, Christians would not allow an impotent male or female to get married, and married Christians who choose not to beget children would be in sin. Although sex is an important part of marriage, 1 Corinthians 7, 5, and sex and children are a blessing that should be limited to the confines of marriage, Psalms 127, 4, and 5, the purpose of marriage is not procreation. A similar argument against homosexual marriage is that men and women are different beyond the outward physical difference of their sex that enables procreation. That is to say, the ability to procreate aside, there are psychological and emotional differences between men and women, and this contrast between partners is a requirement of marriage and a reason why two men cannot get married. Men are masculine, women are feminine, and those differences mesh in a way that is a requirement of marriage. Thus, two men, both being masculine, can't get married because there is not that juxtaposition in a spouse. Paul points out this difference applied to roles in marriage in Ephesians 5, 22-25. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But gay marriage is forbidden by the church because of morality, so one must look at this contrast in marriage through the lens of morality. 
Thus, the question is, if a married couple is living in sin, when the man is a stay-at-home dad raising the kids, and the wife is the head of the household and works to supply the monetary needs of the family. This is not a question of what is the ideal, but if the married man is sinning by not being the head of the household in the same way that a married man would be sinning if he engages in adultery. Otherwise, Paul is just saying the norm, or ideal, is the man as the head. If this is the case, it would be the same as when Paul says the ideal is to avoid marriage altogether, but it's not a sin to get married. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, 7-9 and verse 28, But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them to remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in life, and I want to spare you this. If the husband, who is not the head of the household, is not living in sin and damned to hell in the same way that an adulterous husband is, then neither are two men living in sin and damned to hell who get married without a wife to be the head of. Just because men and women typically exhibit different traits in marriage and fill different roles as a result is not an argument that marriage between two guys who don't have that same juxtaposition is immoral. Section 3.3 Marriage Represented by Jesus to help illustrate marriage, Paul gives the analogy in Ephesians 5:25-33 that Christian marriage is analogous to Jesus' marriage to the church, that Christian marriages should mirror the same self-sacrificial commitment that takes all of an individual, just like Jesus did with the church. This analogy to Christ and the church doesn't reflect anything about procreation, further driving home the point that the ability to procreate is not a purpose of marriage, but just a part of some marriages. Section 3.4. Marriage for Sanctification. Another purpose of marriage we see in Christianity is for our sanctification. Being bound in a lifelong covenant relationship helps both Christian partners identify and overcome sin and grow in Christlikeness. The book The Sacred Marriage by Gary Thompson explores the concept of marriage for sanctification, addressing the question, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than make us happy? In it, he explores how marriage points us to true fulfillment, that marital analogies teach us truths about God, marriage teaches us about love, marriage teaches us to respect others, a good marriage can foster good prayer, marriage exposes our sin, marriage helps build the spiritual discipline and perseverance, difficulty in marriage can help us build character, marriage teaches us to forgive, marriage can build in us a servant's heart, marital sexuality can provide spiritual insights about character development, Marriage can make us more aware of God's presence, and marriage can, can develop our spiritual calling, mission, and purpose. All Christian marriages will experience sanctification as a result of the marriage. Not all marriages will experience procreation. Section 3.5. Marriage as an Outlet for Passion God created us as sexual beings. Paul observes that it is best to be single, but it is better to marry than to burn with passion, in 1 Corinthians 7, 9. Marriage is the outlet that God has given us for the burning passion he has also given us. Although it does not mean that marriage needs to exist for homosexuals, it should be clear that if homosexuals cannot marry, God provides homosexuals with a burning passion, but he does not provide them with a method to satiate it. Section 3.6. Emotional, Physical Needs There is no question that God provides all we need. Philippians 
but there are some romantic and emotional desires that God gives us that he will not personally satisfy. Instead, he has given us marriage as a means to satisfy those romantic and emotional desires. There is something special when you find someone to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. You cannot take Jesus to the movie, or on a walk, or alternate who drives the kids to soccer practice, or sit with at those awkward family Christmas parties, or to grow old with. Jesus is always there and will never leave you, but God has created marriage as his way to fulfill romantic desires that he also gave us. Yes, sex is an important part of marriage, but there is so much more to be said for what comes with that covenant relationship beyond sex, and fulfillment of those desires given to us by God are denied when the covenant of marriage is also denied. Section 3.7. De Morgan's Law. God says man will be joined to his wife. This is good, but does not say anything about man and man. It's a logical fallacy to assume it's implicit in the statement that if man and woman is good, man and man must therefore be bad. If God believes homosexuality is immoral, it's not seen in the statement, and to assume this passage does say that is a logical fallacy. A similar example of this kind of logical fallacy would be to say that the Bible supports slavery because it talks about slavery, but it does not specifically forbid it. Section 3.8. Polygamy Condemned. There is concern that if marriage in the church isn't specifically defined as a man and woman, then the redefinition that allows two men or two women to get married will inevitably lead to polygamy in marriages. However, it's not a redefinition of marriage, but rather pointing out that marriage is a covenant relationship. As previously mentioned, although procreation exists only within marriage, procreation is not a requirement of marriage. If procreation was a requirement of marriage, then men or women who were impotent would be forbidden from marriage, and a man and a woman who is married but chose not to procreate would be in sin. However, that is not the case. Impotent Christians can still marry, and a member of a married couple only finds themselves in sin when they break the covenant relationship. The important thing in marriage is that it is a covenant relationship in which both parties give all of themselves to the other party. This is also why, as C.S. Lewis points out, that a divorce between Christians is more like cutting off a limb than dissolving a business partnership. If both parties have entered a covenant relationship and given all of themselves to the other, then they have nothing left to give to a third party. To say that one's sex does not matter when entering the covenant relationship of marriage does not mean the number of parties involved may change. Marriage is still between two, and only two, and I provide no justification to allow for any more than two in the covenant relationship of marriage. Section 3.9. Bestiality Condemned. This is also the same reason one cannot marry an animal. The covenant relationship is a requirement of marriage. It is not possible to enter a covenant relationship with an animal. If it wasn't already clear when God said there was no suitable helper found among the animals, it should be clear that humans, only humans, were made in God's image, and we are set apart from the rest of creation. Animals cannot give consent to marriage, cannot enter a covenant relationship, and cannot be the helpmate with which we become one flesh. Sex with animals is immoral apart from the morality of homosexuality. Section 3.10 Totality of Scripture Even if the individual passages on homosexuals do not clearly condemn a homosexual couple from entering the covenant relationship of marriage, the totality of Scripture talks at length about marriage between a man and a woman and is silent on the marriage of two of the same sex. 
For this reason, many Christians see no reason to look further into the matter and have considered the case closed. The totality of Scripture points in one direction and is silent in the other. However, this is not in and of itself sufficient reason to consider the case closed, especially considering examples of the Church making moral progress in other areas where the totality of Scripture speaks differently than the position of the Church. The Bible is God's inerrant word and applies to us today the same as it applied to Christians a thousand years ago, but the manifestation of the good news is seen differently in different cultures. This isn't to say that morality has changed, but rather that our understanding of morality has changed. The first example of moral progress diverging on the totality of Scripture is slavery. Slavery is mentioned a number of times in the Old and New Testaments and is never condemned outright. Specifically, the Bible outlines both how to be a Christian slave in 1 Peter 2.18, Ephesians 6.5-8, Colossians 3.22, 1 Timothy 6.1, and Titus 2.9, and how to be a Christian slave owner, 1 Timothy 6.2, Ephesians 6.9, Colossians 4.1. The basic doctrine of repentance of sin and the need for Jesus' sacrifice was the same, but the society had both slaves and slave owners, both Christian and non-Christian. The society 2,000 years ago was accepting of slavery. Today, the church is unanimous in its agreement that slavery is immoral for the Christian, and most societies today also condemn slavery, thanks to Christians leading the charge against slavery a couple hundred years ago. Although Christians are not perfect, God is perfect, and he works through Christians to see his will done. And so, we see in the case of slavery, even though the totality of Scripture points us in one direction, that slavery is acceptable for Christians, Christianity today has found the opposite to be true, that slavery is not acceptable. A Christian in today's society that acknowledges the immorality of slavery cannot be in good conscience and own slaves. It's worth noting that some will argue that the version of slavery in the Old Testament isn't the same as our version we think of today, and that the slavery of the Old Testament was more like a business partnership than what we think of slavery in the lead-up to the Civil War. However, Exodus 21, 20-21 says, Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result, but they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two, since the slave is their property. And Exodus 21.26 says, An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. This does not describe a business partnership as we would think of one today. It's very clear that whatever version of slavery existed and was permissible in the culture when Exodus was written is not permissible for us today, and that is the direct result of God working through Christians for moral progress. Another example of moral progress diverging from the totality of Scripture can be seen in polygamy. The totality of Scripture does not condemn polygamy and in some cases promotes it. The Old Testament is rife with examples of polygamy dating back to the very first humans, Cain in Genesis 4, the kings of Israel like David and Solomon who had 200 wives, and the prophets, Moses had two. In the New Testament, polygamy is not condemned either. We do see Paul speak positively about monogamy in a list of traits that elders must have to qualify themselves over and above the general Christian populace, 1 Timothy 3.2, the husband of one wife. But this is a list to distinguish elders from the rest of Christians. It just applies to those who are seeking a position of leadership in the church. Thus, a non-elder in the early church was permitted to have more wives, but an elder should only have one. But today, 
even though the totality of Scripture speaks positively of polygamy, Christians now see it as immoral. A Christian today cannot be in good conscience and have multiple wives. Slavery and polygamy are two examples of moral progress in the direction of more restrictions on Christians today, but there are also examples of restrictions in earlier societies being relaxed. In the early church, we saw dietary restrictions and the restrictions on circumcision lifted. In Acts 10.9-11.18, we learn that there are no longer unclean foods for God's people. Then, later in Acts 15, we see the council of believers decide that those following Christ are heirs of the promise but no longer required to keep the sacrament of circumcision. As a modern example, the early church treated women like second-class citizens. In 1 Corinthians 11.4-6, Paul says that women must pray with their heads covered, and it is disgraceful for women to cut off her hair. In 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, women are told not to speak in churches, and if they have questions, they should ask their husbands at home. We no longer believe that those constraints apply to church congregations today. This is the direct result of moral progress led by God. So how do Christians know when the totality of Scripture speaks a certain way on a societal issue, but Christians today are held to a different standard? How did Christians come to end slavery and polygamy and decide that women weren't second-class citizens? God, working moral progress through the Holy Spirit, who is in his people. So the question about the covenant relationship between two men. The, the totality of scripture speaks to a man and woman in a covenant relationship, but is silent on two men entering a covenant relationship. The totality of scripture is incredibly important, but as we see in the case of slavery and polygamy, it doesn't necessarily mean a societal issue applies to us the same way as it did back then. But God will continue to lead Christians in moral progress through his Holy Spirit until he returns to do so in the flesh. Section 3.11 Intermediate Conclusion God did not make marriage for procreation, but because God decided that it is not good for man to be alone. Further, we see how marriage should be played out using Christ's example of selfless love and sacrifice for the church, not for procreation. Procreation is a blessing of marriage, but not a purpose of marriage, nor a requirement of marriage. Lastly, God does say man and wife, but that does not in and of itself forbid man and husband. We cannot say that God prohibits gay marriage because two men cannot procreate, or that the Bible forbids homosexual marriage because it does not mention it. Section 4. Homosexuality, the Unique Sin Section 4.1. Praying the Gay Away Prior to the turn of the century, People thought a homosexual could be made to no longer have homosexual desires through something called conversion therapy. These methods included brain surgery, chemical castration, shock therapy, counseling, visualization, social skills training, and of course, prayer. But, short of removing the entire sex drive, we now know there is no way to fix the romantic desires for companionship with the same sex. For example, Alan Chambers was the president of Exodus International, an organization to help Christians find freedom from homosexuality. In 2013, after running the organization for 37 years, Chambers admitted that although he had mostly overcome his homosexual attractions, 99% of homosexuals do not really change. So he dissolved the organization and apologized for the hurt he had caused. John Polk, founded and led, focused on the family's ex-gay ministry, Love One Out, until 2003, when he left the organization and denounced the ex-gay movement in efforts to change individual sexual orientation. In 2013, Pauk left his wife, disavowed any belief in gay reparative therapy, 
embraced his homosexuality, and instead became an advocate for the homosexual movement. Ted Haggart was a pastor of a megachurch, New Life, in Colorado Springs, and the leader of the National Association of Evangelicals, about 45,000 churches, until it came to light in 2006 that he was seeing a male prostitute in Denver, hiding his homosexual desires from the world. The problem is not just isolated to famous gays. It is sad how many straight marriages I've seen fail when a homosexual thought they could fix themselves by marrying a woman and forcing change. To be clear, if someone marries a woman and comes out, I do not believe that is grounds for divorce. The point is that there is danger in thinking that God's solution to homosexuality is being rid of your homosexual desires. Regardless of if you believe the homosexual romantic desires are immoral, there is clear evidence that after a certain age of sexual maturity, the homosexual desires will never go away. Ever. Often, straight Christians who don't have experience with homosexuality misunderstand what is meant in Christian circles by a Christian ex-homosexual. It's not one who no longer has homosexual desires, but rather a Christian who still has homosexual desires, but no longer acts on them. All ex-gay ministries promise is to help you avoid acting on your desires. To think that the desires will go away is dangerous poppycock. When well-meaning but ignorant straight Christians set up the goal of the ex-gay to have no homosexual desires, they are setting up an unattainable goal and setting up the homosexual Christian for failure. It's the same as saying the goal is to have no sexual desires, which is also dangerous because God has made us to be sexual creatures. Our goal should not be to get rid of our sex drive, but rather to control it and keep it within the restrictions of God's will. The point I want to make clear to the straight Christian who doesn't have to deal with homosexual desires is that no Christian healing ministry today says they can make a homosexual not have a sex drive or turn his sex drive straight. A Christian ex-gay in today's terms only means a Christian with homosexual desires that no longer acts on them. Section 4.2, A Sinful Desire with No Cure The previous section brings up an interesting point that I don't want to go unnoticed. Homosexuality is the only sinful desire that Christians teach may or may not change as you grow closer to Christ. Christians believe that as you grow, grow in Christ, you should hate less, envy less, lie less, Titus 3, 3-5, Colossians 3, 8-10, but as you go closer to Christ, your desires align with His. This process is called sanctification. But the homosexual will always have homosexual desires, and the Christians admit that only in the case of homosexuality is there no correlation between immoral homosexual desires and your walk with Christ. When someone repents and comes to Christ, we should expect a change in their heart. We should look skeptically on someone who is the same before repentance as they are after repentance. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Galatians 2.20 if someone had a problem with, say, wickedness, greed, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossiping, slander, hater of God, insolence, arrogance, boastfulness, disobedience to parents, lacking love or mercy, Romans 1, 29-31, we should expect some change as a result of repentance, and certainly expect more during the process of sanctification as the Christian grows in their walk with Christ. But desires don't just disappear normally. But they are, there should be a stark contrast in your new life. Although one may continue to struggle in some areas, as one grows closer to Christ, their desire to sin wanes as their desire for God waxes. As C.S. Lewis points out, by acting more like Christ, our desires will begin to align with Christ's desires as well. 
If we don't love someone, we are called to act as though we did. The more we act as we should, we begin to actually feel love toward them as well. But not with homosexuality. It doesn't matter how close to God you are, or how much you avoid acting on it. It doesn't go away or change. The desire for a meaningful romantic relationship is part of how God has made us. It existed in humans before sin and the fall of man, so we should not expect it to go away as sin wanes in our lives. This is in contrast to the change a Christian would expect to see after repentance in a sex drive that has been wrongfully inflamed, as from porn or promiscuity. During the process of sanctification, one would expect their inflamed sex drive to be made right with God as a result of sanctification. It's the same as a wrongfully inflamed heterosexual sex drive. But once their sex drive is healthy and in the confines of God's commands, it won't change with following Christ's commands. As we resist the devil, he flees from us, James 4, 7, and 8, but in the unique case of homosexuality, an ex-gay Christian means only that they still have the desire for homosexual companionship as the old self, they just choose not to act on those desires. Christians admit that the desires will be there until you die, and if your sex drive was not wrongfully inflamed, those desires don't change. There is no other sin that Christians say this about. We grant homosexuals an exception to policy because the desire for companionship doesn't go away. Sure, God can do anything. He could even turn a homosexual into a woman. But, by long experience, we have found that the homosexual desire for homosexual companionship after repentance will be the same as it was before repentance. The desire for homosexual companionship will remain until he dies. Section 4.3 The Gift of Singleness The Church teaches that singleness is a gift. No one is forced to be single to come to Christ, but only those who choose to be single choose to do so to serve God better. However, the Church that opposes gay marriage also teaches that because God provides no outlet for the desire for a homosexual romantic relationship, homosexuals must remain single. Hence, a problem. Christians are not forced to be single to serve God. They have the choice. And, homosexuals must be single to serve God. Homosexuals have no choice. And to be clear, a homosexual marrying a woman is not the same thing. There is a stark difference between eros and philia, between sexual passion and friendship. It doesn't take much soul-searching for a straight guy to agree that there is a difference in the kind of love and passion that comes between him and his wife, and between him and his best guy friend. Also, saying that Jesus is all you need isn't a solution either. Although Jesus does provide all we need, as previously mentioned, God does not personally satisfy the desires for a romantic companionship that he has given us. Rather, God has given us marriage to fulfill those desires. I'm not saying that everyone will get married, that's obvious, and it's true that not all Christians who want to get married will get married. What I'm saying is that the ubiquitous forcing of singleness on gay Christians to serve God is antithetical to the Christian doctrine of the gift of singleness. Section 4.4 Sin in Action, Not in Thought Christians that oppose gay marriage also distinguish the thoughts and actions of homosexuals when deciding sin. They teach that a homosexual may have homosexual desires and not be in sin. The gay Christian is only in sin when they act on those desires. Two homosexuals may hold hands in a romantic relationship and see movies together and not be in sin, but as soon as they turn to sex, they are sinning. The same is true with an unmarried straight couple. They may hold hands in a romantic relationship and see a movie together and not be in sin, 
but they cross a line when they get sexual. A heterosexual or homosexual couple may spend time together without sex and neither be in sin unless they get sexual before marriage. Section 4.5 You can't have your cake and eat it too. Christians also teach that your heart condition dictates sin in many cases, and that God cares more about where your heart is than the action itself. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 that if we think something is a sin and do it anyway, like eating meat sacrificed to an idol, we are in sin. Even if the action would not be a sin for another Christian, we are sinning because of our heart condition. James says the inverse in James 14:17 that if we know the right thing to do and do not do it, then we are in sin again. The Christian can be in sin without the physical act mattering based on the Christian's heart. Based on the Christian's heart, the same action could be a sin or could not be a sin. This is juxtaposed to cases where the action is always sin for anyone, like in the case of murder or adultery. Here, Jesus explains that not only is it a sin to do the action, but to even commit the action in your heart is sin. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus explains that lust in your heart is the same as adultery. If you hate in your heart, you are guilty of murder. It's not enough to just not commit the action to not sin, as the Christians can sin with their heart even if they don't act. Envy is another obvious sin that does not require any specific outward action to be sin. Even keeping the Sabbath is an issue of the heart. What one man might consider work, another man might consider an enjoyable pastime, like running, which all normal people know was never supposed to be fun. And so it is with all sins. In some cases, an action may or may not be sin depending on where your heart is and if it's in the wrong place. In other cases, where the action is never okay, as with murder, adultery, and envy, just the desire is enough to be guilty of sin. Now consider homosexual acts. When the church says that gay marriage is never an option, homosexual acts have no outlet in God's will and thus are considered to be an act that is always a sin. Christians that oppose gay marriage put homosexuality in the same always-sin category as lust, murder, and envy. Despite this, the church teaches that it's fine for you to have homosexual desires as they will never go away. You're only sinning when you commit any homosexual acts. But this is in direct opposition to the church's stance on all other sins where the action is always wrong, making homosexuality another exception to church doctrine. If the homosexual act is sin in all situations, then if you're doing anything in your heart that spawns from that sin, you are also in sin. This is in contrast to a normal straight sex drive. Because there is a place for straight sex, marriage. So, as long as your romantic desires and lust are for your wife, the straight sexual romantic desires are not sin. Put another way, a guy may court a girl who he is not married to because marriage is an option. But if the guy was already married, that same guy who is courting another woman would thus be in sin. Because a second marriage isn't an option for a straight man, any courtship with women who aren't his wife would put him in sin because there is no marriage option for him. If gay marriage is never an option for a Christian, then all homosexual actions are sin. If homosexual actions are always sin, then the homosexual desires must therefore also be sin. Non-sexual, homosexual romance, like holding hands, must be sin if homosexual marriage is a sin. 
In the same way that a desire for adultery is always sin, and the desire for murder is always sin, so also must the desire for homosexual romance always be sin if homosexual marriage is a sin. You can't have your cake and eat it too. If the act of homosexuality is always immoral, then the thoughts that directly spawn from that sin are also sin. Section 4.6 Intermediate Conclusion If homosexuality is a normal sin, then we should see the desires for the sin decrease as one grows in his or her relationship with God, but we don't. If the homosexual act is immoral in all cases, like adultery or murder, then the homosexual desires are also sin, just like the, the desires for adultery or murder. But we treat homosexuality as a special sin, one that God doesn't fix, and one that God is okay with our allowing our hearts to partake in so long as we don't let it turn to sex. It's the only sin that the church believes is always immoral without the desires being immoral, and the only sin whose desires the church believes won't wane as you grow in Christlikeness. Section 5. Miscellaneous. Section 5.1. Disagreement on homosexuality is not hate. Disagreement is not hate. Disagreeing on gay marriage does not mean you hate gay people. But this has become such a common misconception that it's even found its way into pop culture songs, like Taylor Swift's Need to Calm Down. In the music video, she shows, shows Christians with signs that say homosexuality is a sin, while she sings that they need to control their urges to scream about all the people they hate. Although there are people who hate homosexuals, they are incredibly rare. Most people disagree without hatred. To conflate disagreement with hatred is ignorant and dangerous. For example, I disagree with prostitution, and yet I still love my friends who have engaged in it. I disagree with gay friends and committed same-sex relationships that like to bring a third guy in on the side for sex, but I still love my friends. I certainly don't hate them just because I disagree with their choices. In the same way, Christians may disagree with gay marriage, but that in no way means they hate gays, or they have trouble controlling their urges to scream about all the people they hate, as Taylor Swift accuses. Section 5.2. Gay Culture, Evidence of Sinfulness. You will know a tree by its fruit, Matthew 12.33. One doesn't need to look far into the gay culture to find it steeped in sexual hedonism. When the homosexual culture developed in the 1950s, the church was very vocal on its condemnation of homosexuality. Because of this stance, the church would wash their hands of anyone who said they were homosexual, condemning them just as they would condemn a pedophile. So, the gay culture grew without the influence or interference of the church, and developed into a self-serving culture ruled by lust. But that should not come as a surprise. Any culture, gay or straight, that comes up without the influence of God will exhibit the same thing, a culture ruled by sin. God acknowledges in Genesis 8.21 that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. But it would be wrong to say that the immorality of the homosexual culture is evidence of the immorality of homosexuality. It's like a traveler going into deepest, darkest Africa and seeing an unreached tribe of Africans who have a sinful culture and saying that because of this tribe's culture is evil, they too must be evil and cannot be African and Christian. True, there are aspects of their culture that would need to go, aka the immorality and sin, but that's not to say that they cannot be Christian because they're African. Furthermore, every group of humans has an identity that grows from the commonality. For Christians, we celebrate our common relationship with God and our common sense of morality and desire to please God. 
Our gatherings are often markedly Christian because of this. In the same way, homosexuals celebrate the commonality, which in this case is their sexuality. So don't act so surprised when you see a gay pride parade and there are a bunch of sexualized men in speedos on parade floats handing out penis-shaped lollipops. As Christians, we wouldn't appreciate this flouting of sexuality, but after we force them out of the church, we can't act so surprised when they decide to celebrate the thing which they have in common, their sexuality. Section 5.3 If most Christians think homosexuality is immoral, how could they be wrong? All of the arguments aside, people often say that homosexuality must be immoral because the majority of the church appears to be in agreement about homosexuality. If the majority of Bible-believing Christians believe that homosexuality is a sin, how could they be wrong? Certainly a valid point, as God does work through the church, but that is not an argument in and of itself. The church has gotten some really big things wrong in the past. For example, in the book of Acts, we see the mistakes made by the early church, not accepting Gentile believers, believing food still unclean, and thinking that circumcision is necessary. In the modern-day church, we have examples of the Lovely Crusades, Spanish Inquisition, and up until about the Civil War, churches still believed that the Bible condoned slavery because of the curse of Ham. It wasn't until Martin Luther King Jr. realized that just because the Bible talks about how Christian slaves should act, it doesn't mean that the Bible condones slavery. Section 5.4 Natural Sometimes Christians argue that homosexuality isn't natural, so it must be wrong. But what is natural? Sure, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And if every human was homosexual, it wouldn't take long for the human race to die off. So, what? Since it is not possible to procreate with another man, homosexuality is unnatural and therefore immoral? As far as what actually occurs in nature, homosexuality can be seen in many animal species. Accounts range from 500 to 1,500 species that have shown homosexual behavior, everything from primates to gutworms. Homosexuality even occurs in humans. <laughs> Not only that, but interestingly, biochemists are, were able to turn fruit flies gay by changing a chemical, and then turn them straight again with the same chemical, as further evidence of a natural, physical distinction for homosexual proclivity. It would appear that homosexuality isn't unnatural in the sense that it doesn't occur in nature, at least. Section 5.5. If men hadn't fallen, there would be no homosexuality. True, but not meaningful. Sure, the Garden of Eden with only one man and one woman homosexually didn't or couldn't have occurred. But the existence of homosexuality after the fall doesn't in itself make it immoral. Before the fall, there was no death. Therefore, eating meat also only occurred as the result of the fall of man. And yet, it's not immoral to eat meat. There is also a good argument that there was no sickness or pain before the fall, but sickness and pain are not immoral. Or even clothing, as a result of the fall of man, is not immoral. The fact that there was no homosexuality before the fall of man and must therefore be immoral is a non-sequitur. Section 5.6 Christian versus Secular Marriage Even if the Church believes that homosexuality is immoral, there is still an argument for Christian politicians to allow gay marriage in law. C.S. Lewis makes this point about not forcing the biblical standard of divorce on non-Christians through law. He explains first that, I should be very angry if Mohammedans tried to prevent the rest of us from drinking wine. My own view is that the churches should 
frankly recognize that the majority of the British people are not Christians and, therefore, cannot be expected to live Christian lives. There ought to be two distinct kinds of marriage, one governed by the state with rules enforced on all citizens, and the other governed by the church with rules enforced by her own members. The distinction ought to be quite sharp, so that a man knows which couples are married in a Christian sense and which are not. I believe the same applies to homosexual marriage. Regardless of the church's view on its morality, in the case of gay marriage, we should not force non-Christians to live as though they were married in the church when they are not. Section 5.7. Same Sexual Standard. It should come as no surprise that the sexual standard for a homosexual Christian is the same sexual standard as for a heterosexual Christian. Pornography is wrong, unless it's of the person you're married to, sex and sexual acts should only find manifestation within the confines of marriage, and divorce should only be allowed in the case of adultery. Section 5.8. Lesbians. If homosexuality is immoral for men, it is also immoral for women. If homosexuality is not immoral for men, then it is also not immoral for women. Section 5.9. Adoption and Children. I believe that it's best for a child to grow up with mom and a dad, because that's how they were brought into this world. But being raised by two dads beats being raised by no parents. In fact, it's even better to have two dads who care about their child than two heterosexual parents who don't. Lastly, studies show that two dads does not make a child more likely to turn out gay or less likely to be successful as an adult. A same-sex married couple or a heterosexual married couple should both be able to adopt children in need, and I don't think Christians are helping children by making it harder for same-sex married couples from adopting children. Preventing orphaned children from having parents if they cannot be heterosexual parents is bad for everyone, especially the child. Section 510. Repression. A common danger among homosexual Christians is the Christian who has homosexual desires and doesn't want them, in hopes that by repressing them, the desires will go away. Repression will not make the desires go away, it will not solve anything, and will actually make more problems for you down the road. Regardless of if you believe you can serve God with the attractions, or that you'll have to serve God despite the attractions, homosexual Christians need to come to terms with reality. Admittedly, repression only happens in homosexual Christians who believe homosexuality is wrong, and it's typically because they are ashamed of it. That's fine if you think that homosexuality is immoral, but even if you do, you should confess your sins to one another, James 5.16, and know that he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, Proverbs 28.13. If you think it's a problem, that's fine, but the first step to finding a solution is admitting the problem. Repression is likely to result in anger and self-loathing, and when you fail and the desires manifest in a physical way, it'll create a bigger mess than if you were to deal with it out in the open. Repression is never the solution. Section 6. Conclusion. Section 6.1. The Bible. The Old Testament verses, and the use of arson and koetai in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, forbids homosexuality and ties the forbidden homosexuality to idol worship. Romans 1 further condemns homosexuality that results from idolatry, worshiping the created rather than the creator. This raises the question of homosexuality that is not linked to idol worship, which is not directly spoken to in the Bible. Section 6.2. Defining Homosexuality 
Homosexuality is rooted in a desire for homosexual companionship, in the same way heterosexuals are driven for homosexual companionship that leads to marriage. Although sex may only exist within the confines of marriage, the immorality of homosexual marriage does not lie in the act of an orgasm, but rather in the morality of a romantic, emotional, monogamous relationship between two guys, which would, after marriage, lead to homosexual sex. Homosexual sex itself is not the important thing. Section 6.3. Marriage God made marriage for the relationship, not for procreation. As God said, it is not good for man to be alone. We see how marriage should be played out using Christ's example of selfless love and a sacrifice for the church, not for procreation. We also see God use marriage for the process of sanctification in our lives. Procreation is a blessing of marriage, but not the purpose of marriage, nor a requirement of marriage. The straight couple who cannot have kids is not forbidden from marriage, nor is a straight couple sinning if they decide not to beget children. Additionally, God does say man and wife, and that the totality of Scripture points to man and wife, but that does not, in and of itself, show that God is forbidding man and husband. We cannot say that God prohibits gay marriage because two men cannot procreate, or that the Bible prohibits homosexual marriage because it does not mention it. Section 6.4. Homosexuality, the Unique Sin during the process of sanctification, Christians see the desires for sin decrease as one grows in his or her relationship with Christ. But the desires for homosexual romantic companionship don't. Although a heterosexual or homosexual sex drive that has been damaged by porn or adultery will experience correction as a result of sanctification, once the sex drive is inside the confines of God's will, the desires for homoromantic or heteroromantic companionship will not change as the result of sanctification. Additionally, if homosexual act is immoral in all cases, like the acts of murder, adultery, and envy, then the homosexual desires are also sin, just like the desires for murder, adultery, and envy are sin in their heart. The desires for actions that are sin are also sin. For example, it is not sin for a man to court a woman without premarital sex when they can marry. But, regardless of premarital sex, it would be sin for a man to court a woman if he's already married to another woman, because the second marriage would be sin. The same would be true for homosexuality. If gay marriage is always sin, then homosexual, non-sexual romantic interaction must also be sin. But we treat homosexuality as the special sin, one that God doesn't fix, and one that God is okay with allowing in our hearts to partake, so long as we don't allow it to turn into sex. It's the only sin that the church believes that the act is always immoral without the desires being immoral, and the only sin the church believes whose desires won't wane as you grow closer to God. Section 6.5. Miscellaneous. This section covered several disparate concepts. Immorality in the homosexual culture does not prove that homosexuality is inherently immoral. The church's unanimous condemnation of homosexual marriage does not in and of itself prove that it is immoral. We've gotten things wrong before. Homosexuality occurs in nature, outside of humans. The fact that homosexuality didn't exist until after the fall of man is moot. As long as the church opposes gay marriage, there should be two kinds of marriage, marriage in the church and marriage of the state. Homosexual and heterosexual Christians should have the same sexual standard. Better to have a child raised by two dads than no parents and repression denial of homosexual desires is a bad thing and will lead to more problems. Regardless on your view of the immorality of homosexuality, repression is never the solution.
Section 6.6. .6. So what? Is the homosexual desire for a romantic relationship with another man immoral? John 16.13. But when he, the Spirit of Truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. God has given us the Spirit of Truth. Ask him. Section 6.7. Advice for Christian Gays. We are very different than non-Christian gays. Your sexuality is not the most important thing about you. It should not be surprising, but we have significantly more in common with non-gay Christians than we do with gay non-Christians. Your sexuality is part of who you are, just like all the other parts. But after giving your life to Christ, you live a new life. We no longer see the world the same way. Being a Christian changes everything about you. What you want, what you value, how you spend your time, things you enjoy... We also need to be wise with who we spend our time with. Jesus hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes, but he also had his discipleship group. If we find that we are spending more time with tax collectors and prostitutes, and less time in fellowship with other believers, we should be concerned for the direction that our life takes. It's fine if you disagree about gay marriage. I laid out my argument why I believe it's acceptable to God that marriage has to do with the covenant relationship and not with procreation, but if you still disagree, that's totally fine. If you think gay marriage is acceptable to God, based on the Bible, there is nothing wrong with getting spiritual food from a church or Bible study group that disagrees and believes that gay marriage is not acceptable to God based on the Bible. The important thing when looking for spiritual food is that the church is doing its best to teach doctrine rooted in God's word. There is biblical doctrine that is non-negotiable for Christians to believe. God has given us a moral law, we have each broken that moral law, we stand condemned before God as lawbreakers. Being made right before God requires a perfect sacrifice. God has provided that sacrifice through the death of Jesus, his son, who was sinless and God incarnate. And there is no other way to be made right before God except through Jesus' sacrifice. If you go to a church that teaches that Jesus is just one way to God, run for the hills. If you go to a church that says that Jesus is the only way, but the pastor will not marry you to another man, not a big deal. You cannot receive spiritual food from a church that teaches that Jesus is just one way, but you can receive spiritual food from a church that believes that marrying another guy is sin. In fact, it's good to talk to the leadership about what God has led you to believe that's different. Don't hide your beliefs, but make sure they're grounded in God's word. Although we receive God's truth through God's word, 2 Timothy 3.16, and through the Holy Spirit, John 16.13, Jesus also talks about the importance about seeking truth with other believers, Matthew 18, 19, and 20. And if they ask you to leave because it makes them uncomfortable to have someone in the church that supports gay marriage, then give them a high five, tell them you love them because you do, don't just let it be words, 1 John three eighteen. pray for them as your brothers, and pray for God to help you find your next church. Although I am fully convinced that God doesn't care if two Christians enter a covenant relationship of marriage but can't make babies, I could be wrong. But then again, there was also a time when, in alignment with the culture of the time, the church didn't let women speak in church and allowed slavery. Moral progress as a society has helped the church with women and slaves and many other societal norms through the ages. Perhaps through moral progress, God will show the church that your physical genitals don't matter when two seek to serve God through a covenant relationship. Or, like I said, I could be wrong, and that's why I laid out my argument as plainly as possible so that smart people could consider my logic and find logical fallacies. Only date someone you can marry, and only marry someone who you wholeheartedly believe you can serve God better with than without.
Sex outside marriage is wrong. If you disagree, then read the Bible. Hebrews 13.4, Romans 13.13-14, 1 Thessalonians 4-8. You try a shoe on before you buy it, because the purpose of a shoe is to enable you to walk. If you think the purpose of marriage is to enable you to have sex, then you're doing it wrong. Marriage is for sanctification, and to help two Christians grow in Christlikeness. Sex is part of marriage, but not the purpose of marriage. Having said that, be careful of pushing sexual boundaries while dating. I would suggest that the definition a Christian gay uses for sex be intentional and direct physical contact with the area covered by your underwear. For example, spooning is fine, but hand down the pants would not be fine. Porn is wrong, unless it's of the person you're married to. I know the arguments for porn, namely that it doesn't hurt anyone, but it does. It hurts you and your relationship with God. It is lust, and Jesus is clear that lusting after a woman or man that you're not married to is the same as adultery. Matthew 5.27 Even if what you're looking at isn't nudity, if you're looking at something to help you get off, then you're sinning with lust. If porn is a problem for you, I'd recommend an accountability partner and installing covenant eyes on your phone and computer to keep porn from becoming a problem. That's what I use. As Christians, we shouldn't just be the kind of people who pick up after our dog in our neighbor's yard. We should be the kind of people who pick up after other people's dogs in our neighbor's yard. Staying in shape is a good thing. God only gives you two bodies, so take care of the one you've got. Until it breaks down and you get a new one. There is also value in the self-confidence that comes with staying in shape. And there is benefit to staying in shape if you're looking to attract a mate. If you want someone who's physically attractive, it's only fair that you also stay physically attractive for them. And then when you get married, don't stop. Sure, they're tied down for life and can't escape you, but men are visual, and you should try to stay attractive for your mate, as they do the same for you, as you both wither like the grass and watch your beauty fade together. And lastly, different isn't always better, and change isn't always an improvement. Sure, variety is the spice of life, but we should also rejoice in the wife of your youth, Proverbs 5.18, as C.S. Lewis says the best. It is just the people who are ready to submit to the loss of a thrill and settle down to the sober interest who are then most likely to meet new thrills in some quite different direction. That is, I think, one little part of what Christ meant by saying, the thing will not really live until it first dies. It is simply no good trying to keep any thrill. That is the very worst thing you can do. Let the thrill go. Let it die away. Go on through that period of death and to the quieter interest and happiness that follows, and you will find you are living in a world of new thrills all the time. But if you decide to make thrills your regular diet and try to prolong them artificially, they will all get weaker and weaker and fewer and fewer, and you will be a bored, disillusioned old man for the rest of your life.